name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. I believe the epistle reading this morning was probably the King James Version, is that right? You didn't mess it up at all. The mess up was made in 1610. <laughs> the last verse of the, uh, was in the King James this morning, I think, was, be followers of me. And I believe that the Greek word there is mimitagoneste, be imitators of me. Um, I'm glad it didn't change it any more than that, or I simply wouldn't have a sermon. <laughs> St. Paul ends this section, 1 Corinthians, with the exhortation, I urge you to imitate me. I'm not sure exactly how many Christian pastors would feel free giving that direction. I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't at all. I wonder if Metropolitan Philip would feel free saying, everybody do the way I do. Whether Bishop Mark would feel that way. Well, I don't know, but I don't. But St. Paul ends the section with the exhortation, imitate me, the imitators of me. Now, in what respects does he want these Corinthians to imitate him? Now, what he did in these verses this morning was give a portrayal a style of life very much in contrast with the style preferred by the Corinthians. He's going through the, this list of things this morning. He starts by calling the apostles the refuse and the offscouring of all. The Corinthians think of themselves as wise, strong, and distinguished. Whereas Paul is conscious of being foolish, weak, and subject to contempt. And this is the difference between the standards of the world and the standards of the gospel. The standards of the world at least contain the exhortation to be comfortable with yourself, to feel self-secure, Self-esteem is very much the thing. In fact, there are whole journals dedicated to self-esteem. Back when I was a child, I don't recall that being a big premium in our house. I don't remember once being told to get in touch with my feelings or to feel proud of myself. In fact, considerable effort, it seems to me, was made in the opposite direction. Now this contrast between the standards of the world and the standards of the gospel appeared earlier in Paul's first Corinthians when he declared back in the first chapter the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In the present text, he makes this contrast in exactly, count them, one, two, three points. 
Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We may summarize these as prayer. Being reviled, we bless. Patience. Being persecuted, we endure. And persuasion. Being defamed, we entreat. I checked all through every note I had on my computer. And as far as I can tell, in nearly a half a century as a minister of the gospel, I have never preached on this text before. But I've become keenly aware in recent days of the need to consider these things. Prayer, patience, and persuasion. First, being reviled, we bless. This, my beloved, is an essential feature of the Christian life. We do not return evil for evil. In this respect, the destruction of Paul is identical with that of Christ our Lord. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Interesting. Three points again. In both places, both in Luke's Sermon on the Plain and in this morning's text, we are exhorted to turn to prayer to bless those who revile us. That is to say that this contrast is more than an exercise in moral effort. One could easily understand this exhortation to be identical with, say, the general benevolence of the devout Buddha. That won't stand up to close inspection, however. He says we take the matter to God to place our personal trust in God. Buddha can't do that. Because if Buddha has a God at all, which seems dubious to me, it's certainly not a personal God who hears prayer. The element here is that the, we are dealing with a God whose ear is attuned to the difference between blessing and cursing. Even the God of Socrates could make that distinction, as Socrates says in his, his trial. This exhortation, therefore, tells us something essential to Christian prayer. That is to say, it endeavors to be set free from passion. 
especially the passion of anger. Indeed, I think we can say more. Prayer is the proper antidote against anger. Prayer is the proper antidote against anger. Now, the man who walks according to the flesh is bound to feel anger and resentment at being reviled. How many of us, in fact, think about it, how many of us have ever been reviled? I mean, consistently and for years. Some, yes, yes, some of us. But that's a very hard thing to be reviled not react in resentment and anger. If the believer fails to control these feelings, he will become spiritually sick. Think what that means. That means he has allowed someone else to determine his spiritual state. And we know we must not let this happen. No one else may be permitted to determine our spiritual state. We are responsible for our spiritual state. No one else. This is why the New Testament commands us not to return evil for evil, but rather to bless, forcefully to turn our minds to God in prayer. How much prayer? Whatever it takes. Second, being persecuted, we endure. Patience. Now, patience is not an option in the life of the gospel. In fact, just about all of the gospel I find dreadfully attractive, except that thing about patience. It would be so much easier being a Christian, except that it requires patience. The word itself comes from the Latin pati, meaning to suffer. So the word puts us in mind of our Lord, who suffered for our salvation. Patience is not simply virtue we need to develop as an ascetical effort. Patience is the way we become identified with Christ, where he redeemed us by his own patience. <clears throat> Observe in the present text this morning that patience is not a general virtue. <clears throat> patience is not related here to say to putting up with bad traffic or an uncooperative can opener. Patience is related, rather, to the experience of injustice, being persecuted, we endure. The patience required of us is that which endures deliberate malice, is the patience in the face of cruelty and meanness. This is the patience of the saints, the patience of the martyrs who 
finally overthrew the Roman Empire itself. Patience in the face of deliberate malice, in the face of cruelty and meanness. Where do we learn such patience? I think we probably start with bad traffic patterns and uncooperative can openers. Although there have been a few can openers, I think I did discern just a touch of malice. <laughs> we begin with small things. Patience in the home. Patience with children. Patience with parents. Patience in the workplace. Patience at school. At what might be the hardest of all, patience in the church. It's very hard when you meet deliberate malice, cruelty, and meanness in the church. But occasionally you do. Ask Maximus the Confessor, whose relic is over here in our reliquary. It was the church that sliced off his right hand and cut out his tongue to keep him from preaching the truth. One would hope not to find that in church, but occasionally we do. If we endeavor over the years to work on patience in these settings, in the home, in the workplace, school, the church. This effort will bring our souls into conformity to the mind of Christ himself. And the reason we are Christians is to become completely conformed to Christ. Now think what that means, to be conformed to Christ. Think about that. Thirdly, being defamed we entreat. This is what I'm calling persuasion. The verb here, parakalumen, implies an appeal to reason, the effort to remain calm, the refusal to let evil and passion prevail. Now this is very difficult, obviously, but we find the apostles doing it pretty consistently in the New Testament. We see them using great effort to win over those who persecute and defame them. Indeed, this example is one of the great blessings of reading the Acts of the Apostles. One may think of Paul as he stood before Festus and Agrippa, accused, reviled, cursed, what does he do? He calmly reasons. Even when they persecuted him, Paul was more concerned with their salvation than he was with his own reputation. Now this entreaty, this persuasion, depends on prayer and patience, which the first two parts of the triad, but also relies on wisdom and the art of reasonable language. Language without passion. Not the sort of language you're going to find on an orthodox webpage. 
our blog page. We just unleash masses of passion. But reasonable language, artful language, that is to say it involves the control of reason and of language, control of thoughts and control of the tongue are the fingers that type the tongue doesn't say. You know, one cannot long remain a Christian if he lets either his mind or his tongue run wild. And this entreaty is a matter, a ministry of unselfishness. If we love those who persecute us, we're going to be more interesting, more interested in their salvation than in our vindication. The Christian must learn to love his enemies enough to engage them in discourse. And here, my beloved, in just this one verse, Paul gives us an outline what it means to belong to Christ, to be dedicated to the gospel life. Prayer, patience, persuasion. 